This is John Byrne, the lead pastor here at Grace Fellowship, and this is the Grace Deep Dive Podcast, recorded deep in the depths of the Grace Fellowship basement here in Lakewood, Colorado. We dive a little deeper into Sunday sermon. I'm Johnny McCloskey, and I'll be your host on the Grace Deep Dive Podcast. Well, this is uh, Pastor John. Johnny is not with us at the moment. Um, this is a special edition of the Grace Deep Dive podcast. And so I'm uh, really excited. I have with me the author of Cultural Apologetics. And of course, by with me, I don't mean in person, um, but he was kind enough uh, to, um, to to set up a Zoom meeting with me and to let me let me interview him and, and things like that. I reference him in Sunday Sermon. His name is Paul, Paul Gould. And uh, he's written many books, and he's got some more books that are going to be follow-ups to cultural apologetics, a couple of them coming out, which are going to be great. Um, but I, he spent some time with me, gave me about a half hour of his time, and I'm so thankful for that. And uh, so, so without further ado, I am going to let you listen to my interview with uh, Paul Gould, the author of Cultural Apologetics. Very cool. Um, yeah, so you wrote, you wrote the book Cultural Apologetics, and... Uh, and, and I kind of dove into that a little bit, just, you know, kind of going, I wonder, I wonder what his approach is and, and, and picked it up because of the title yeah. and, uh, and, and really liked it, really enjoyed it. Um, but can you, can you maybe explain what a cultural apologetics is, how that's different from more traditional or classical approach to apologetics? Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so cl- usually when people hear the word apologetics, if they have any thought at all, you know, or if they know anything about it, um, typically apologetics is just defined as something like the rational defense of the faith or, you know, giving reasons for the truth of Christianity. Um, cultural apologetics is a little broader than that, where um, I'm basically spent some time thinking a little bit about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be humans that are part of culture and that are shaped by culture? And, uh, and questions about, you know, how can we reach our culture so that the gospel um, is viewed as plausible or indesirable or both. And so cultural apologetics, here's how I define it in the book. I basically say it's working to reestablish the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that the gospel will actually be seen as true to the way the world is. That's the reasonable part, but also true to the way the world ought to be. And that's the desirable part that, you know, Christianity is not just true and reasonable. It is that, but it's so much more. And, and really the, the idea is that um, if we're going to have a conversation with our culture, you know, we've got to be wise about what culture is. And so in the book, I kind of unpack there's, there's kind of a, I call it a global and a local, but think of it as upstream and downstream. You know, upstream, you have all these culture-shaping institutions like the university with respect to truth or the arts with respect to beauty or the, or the city with respect to goodness. Of course, the church should be there as well as a culture-shaping institution. Um, and so we want to be, you know, as a cultural apologist, we want to be working at that level to help show that Christianity is reasonable and desirable. But we also want to be working downstream, you know, at the level of individual lives. How can we help people see the, you know, the truth and the goodness and the beauty of the gospel? So that's basically what I'm trying to do um, is think really deeply about culture and how the gospel relates to it. And then how can we have a conversation with our culture so that it actually gets a fair hearing? 
Very cool. And I, I really like that, the idea of, of not just making it or talking about it being reasonable, but also, you know, you know talking about it being attractive and, yeah. and, 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 and that's, and you talk a lot about enchantment and disenchantment in the book and which I thought was a really interesting way to, to kind of approach how people view um, not just Christianity or, or God in general, but kind of this broader spirituality, if you want to think of it that way or, or use that term. Um, can you, can you talk about, you know, enchantment and disenchantment, especially the disenchantment and, and what that means for us as we engage with culture? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This was one of the surprises of uh, writing the book actually was, you know, I started to read Lewis. So I'm a fan of Lewis and Tolkien and uh, like a lot of folks and, and there's Lewis right there. Oh, oh there you go. Okay. Yeah, I right. see it. Very good. All right. See, I knew I liked you already. <laughs> yeah. So I was reading them and, and there was an essay by Lewis that kind of unlocked him. And then actually, I think unlocked a whole host of things as I was researching and really wrestling with the question of the central question of the book, you know, how does the gospel get a fair hearing? And, and the, the essay from Lewis was actually, um, it's a, not a well-known essay called Talking About Bicycles. And in there, he basically says, you know, that there's four stages that we go through with pretty much pretty much with respect to everything. And he used, he used the bicycle to illustrate it, but basically the four stages were un, unenchanted, you know, when you come into the world as a baby or a young child, you know, the, the human gadgets of the adult world mean nothing to us. They're unenchanted. But then, you know, you get to that enchanted moment, that second stage, and it would be like when the bike uh, training wheels come off and everything is as, as it should be. And life is, you know, full of joy and riding that bike is an awesome thing. But then he says, you know, pretty much, pretty quickly we go to that third stage, which is disenchantment. And that was, that's the idea. You know, he, he talks about it, you know, riding that bike becomes like the oar to the golly slave. Like it becomes, it's work and it's drudgery and it's, you know, it's just not fun. It's not the way it's, there's no joy from it. And basically he says that, that most of us stay in that third category, this disenchanted category, but that we've got to, we've got to press on to the fourth stage, which is re-enchantment. And for him, for Lewis, and this is what sort of unlocks some things for me, what he means by that with respect to the bike is that we would begin to enjoy the bike and creaturely responses get. And, and, and um, of course he's using the bike as an illustration for everything. And, and so that kind of unlocked Lewis and Tolkien, but it actually helped me to kind of um, realize what's interesting. I, I began to notice that, you know, theologians are talking about a disenchanted or idolatrous way of perceiving. And so I define disenchantment as um, failure to see the world in its proper light. And then so as we work with God and each other to re-enchant the world, part of what I mean there is number one, that we would begin to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. And that world, of course, includes people. And then number two, that we would invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does. So yeah, um, what was so interesting, the surprise though about this was that all of us are infected. Just the church, we're 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 disenchanted too. And and so for me, it was a, a realization in my own heart that you know mm-hmm. um, that I experience this this felt absence of God at times, or or, or you know this kind of pervasive idolatry. And, and it was good good um, realizing and writing a book on cultural apologetics that actually had all these implications for discipleship and just right. my own, our own spiritual formation as Christians and things like that. But yeah, that's a little bit about what it is. Yeah, and. And one of the things that I just found was interesting is, is I engage with people who are lost is, is, is how much I see that. And I didn't notice it uh, so much before. Um, 
you know, and as I read your book, I was like, I said, like, oh, wow, I'm seeing this a lot more. Of course, you know, you look for a yellow car, you're going to see a yellow car, right? But, exactly. um, but, but still, it, it's interesting to see how people um, respond to the idea of God. And, and, and it's, it's not the same way that they used to. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But one of the arguments that you bring up in the book um, that we also find, find in C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity, he talks about this as argument from desire. And um, I really like the way you approach that and laid that out. Can you maybe talk about uh, that a little bit, how that argument works and why you think it might be a powerful argument for us, especially at this time in our cultural landscape? Okay. Oh, that's great. Two, great. two great questions. So the argument from desire um, is an argument that C.S. Lewis, um, I don't want to say he was the first to articulate it, but he, he did in a number of places. And so if you're interested, or if your listeners are interested, you can go to chapter 10, uh, the chapter uh, in Mere Christianity on Hope. And that's one place where he famously articulates it. You also see it um, in his uh, essay on the weight of glory, where he gives a version of it as well. Um, and then there's, there's a, the, uh, actually the appendix to uh, A Pilgrim's Regress. You can see him uh, give another version of it. So those are three places where he talks about it. But basically, all he's doing is saying, he's, you know, imagine the set, uh, you know, imagine drawing a circle and saying, this is a set of all our desires. You know, every desire, every longing of the human heart, you know, somehow in that set. And so Lewis basically takes one desire, what he calls the tra- desire for transcendence, or what I call the desire for transcendence, and he plugs that into an argument and and, and basically, you know, it has a theological conclusion. So the desire that he looks at is this universal longing for, uh, for God, basically. Like, so, for example, in chapter 10 of the Amir Christianity on Hope, he says, um, you know, if we find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, mm-hmm. the most probable explanation was that we were made for another world. And then he kind of formulates an argument about that. Um, and I think that this argument from desires is actually one of the most underutilized arguments. Um, and one of the most fascinating arguments for God. Now, why is it, a, why is it I think, why am I interested in it now? Well, I think that um, so there's been a lot of people that have been noting that we're not merely rational animals, that we're desiring animals as well. I mean, this is, you know, St. Augustine from you know, early in the church history. This is something that was really uh, important to him. And in it, you know, as Christians, we are people who are uh, of the book, right? You know, we're, right. we're people of the book, but we live in this age of video and we live in this age where people aren't thinking, people don't know how to carry a linear thought. And we're so driven by our emotions and our longings and our passions. Yeah. And so I find it is a really helpful apologetic, uh, not the, you know, of course the longing for truth is part of the, the deep desire of the human heart. Um, but I find that as a nice entryway into, uh, you know, apologetic discussions today in an age where people are way more in tune with their longings than they are with, you know, reasons or things like that. Now, of course, you want to do both. But, you know, one cool way to argue reason, you know, to reason to God is to begin with our desires. And that's what's going on uh, with the argument from desire. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I've been thinking a lot about lately in relation to that, not only that argument, but just in in culture is, um, and there's that (laughs) divide right between uh, you know, the material world and then the non-material world. And, and people tend to put those in very different categories and say, we can know things about the material world, but if it's not material in the material world, we can't really know things about that. And you can, you know, Francis Schaeffer's upper and lower story or, or however, there's been other descriptions of that as well. But um, can you maybe talk about how you see in, in culture today, 
this desire for that which transcends and, and where people are looking for those things and, and, and maybe, you know, in an attempt to find it, but maybe not. Yeah. Well, that's a good, another great question. Um, I think that the, the, what's so interesting about our longings, you know, the intelligentsia around us, as you know, tell us that the world is flat. You know, there's nothing yeah. beyond this world. There's nothing extra mundane, you know. Everything. And, and, and by, by, by flat, you don't mean literally flat. You mean it's not, t- it's not uh, it doesn't have depth. That's right. Yeah, there, there's just the material cosmos. There's nothing beyond that. Yeah, you're right. Um, and, and, but, but what's so interesting is our longings betray that, you know, every step of the way. I mean, even, um, and so, as I think you, you've, you're hitting at, you, maybe you've read in the book where I talk about all, the possibility of false re-enchantments. Mm-hmm. You know, like the obsession that we have with the occult, for example, or the obsession we had a couple summers ago with Pokemon Go and this augmented reality, you know, like we long for something more than the physical world, whether it's, you know, mythical creatures on a phone or a virtual world, or, you know, watching horror movies that suggest the paranormal or the occult, all those on one reading, they're, they're, they're reflecting back on the deep longing of the human heart. And I think that those are telling. And so part of our job then as cultural apologists is to tease out that longing. You know, what is it about zombies or, I don't know, you know, Twilight or whatever the latest <laughs> thing is, you know, what is it about these mythical creatures that we keep coming back to, you know, that, that we long for. And that's what's so interesting about, you know, a Tolkien or a Lewis or even, even a J.K. Rowling and, and these secondary worlds that we long to go back to. Well, there's something telling about this longing to enter these worlds. For Lewis and, and Tolkien, um, they were doing this to awaken within us the longing for the only other world that we'll ever enter, which is the kingdom of God. Right. And so I think part of what we do in cultural apologi- as cultural apologists is understand culture and understand and read those longings. And I think that many of them are really just pointing to these deeper longings of the heart. And so here's one thing that is always so helpful. You know, go back to that set of desires. Let's switch the analogy. Think, think of your set of desires as an upside down triangle. You know, at the top, you have the surface desires. Um, and then as you go deeper, you have deep desires of the heart. And then as you go to the, the, the bottom, the, the, I guess the apex of the upside down triangle, you find the heart's deepest longing. And of course, that deepest longing, that was what Lewis was talking about. That's the longing for God. As Augustine said, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so um, as we awaken these longings, even the ones right above that deepest desire, goodness, truth, beauty, love, justice, all those are right above it. As we awaken that lo- those longings, well, they're going to eventually find their way to the source. As Augustine said, I love how he says in the Confessions, he said of God, you are the beauty of all beautiful things, and you are the good of all good things. And I would just add the truth in which all true things point. And so part of the proposal in the book was look at these longings, awaken these longings that we have, and then help people, you know, reason is on a quest for truth and, and our, uh, our imagination is on a quest for beauty and our conscience is on a quest for goodness and all of those find their source in Christ. And so as we, as theologians are making connections between goodness, truth, and beauty, these universal longings and the source of that goodness, truth, and beauty in Christ, I think we can begin to see all these things in culture as entree points or starting points to build bridges to, to Jesus and the gospel. So that's kind of the proposal uh, in the book. Yeah, and I think that's so fascinating and, and a way to think about, it. you know, as I've interacted with people, that's another thing I've seen is, is, is kind of this idea of, you know, people want love. You know, love gets talked about a lot in our culture and, um, you know, love and hate and the you know, opposite of love and you know, everybody wants to 
to label somebody who disagrees with them as somebody who hates something or hates someone or whatever it is. But that in, in a sense is a, is a, an appeal to love. Um, and, and I can't, you know, I keep kind of going back to where does that come from? And, and that longing not to love or to be loved or, you know, and, and I just, I love the way you talk about it. And, and that's something that transcends and we're built for that. We're built for something uh, more than just what we uh, experience in the here and now. Yeah. Um, uh, what in, in the book you talked about, and, and I, and it took me a while to find this, I read it and then I, um, and then I lost it and I had to really kind of go back and through and find it. But you talked about, uh, <laughs> students, you'd have them write an essay at the beginning of the semester. And then again, at the end, and they would go from this place of, of either skepticism or non-belief or, or something along those lines, uh, to maybe a place of belief and, and you'd get all excited and, and, and be like, wow, this is great. They've moved to theism and now it's just a short jump to, to mm-hmm. Jesus. And, uh, and, and then you'd kind of be disappointed because they'd just kind of shrug and go, so what? Mm-hmm. Um, can, you, can you maybe maybe talk about that a little bit? It really struck a chord with me. And in, and in light of that, you know, answer this question. This is actually the, the sermon that as we record this will be this coming Sunday, but um, as people hear it will be this last Sunday. Um, the, the title of the sermon is why does God matter? And, and can you just maybe take a shot at answering that question? Why does, why does God matter? Why does it matter if people believe in Jesus or not? Yeah. I'm trying to think what you don't, don't tell me what your passage is over. <laughs> I'm trying to guess here. Okay. Yeah. Why did, so yeah, that, it, that was a really interesting, um, I was teaching philosophy as a grad student at Purdue and yeah, just, you know, people would come to assent to the proposition that God exists and then it just kind of, like you said, shrug their shoulders and move on. You know, cool. The furniture of the world is a little bigger, but oh, well, you know, who cares? I think um, the more I've reflected on that, that experience, and it's not, con- it's, it's not unique to just me teaching in the classroom. I think we experience that all over the place. I think that part of in diagnosing our culture, we're witnessing um, a shift um, toward one of the seven deadly sins, actually. <laughs> um, you know, there's the, the seven cardinal virtues, uh, you know, four classic virtues of wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. And then the church added the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And then, of course, corresponding to each of these virtues, which is like a seven-part map of what human flourishing looks like, right? The church got it. Um, but, of course, there are correspondingly seven deadly sins that, you know, were like the vices for each of those. And the vice that um, is the opposite of the virtue of love is actually the vice of, um, it's called acedia in the Latin, but it's sloth. And it's the kind of spiritual apathy. And what's so interesting in a disenchanted world, and again, I unpack that in the book, but we're seeing, um, I think, a slide toward this kind of spiritual apathy or indifference toward God. And, you know, I spent a lot of time you know, engage in the debate of God, about God in sort of the technical philosophy circles and then just in the world and the public sphere. And there's been this shift. Um, you know, we used to have the atheists and then we had the new atheists. If you remember a decade ago, people like Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens, you, you know these names. Daniel Dennett, yeah, yeah. All these guys. Um, yeah. And, you know, basically their rhetoric, there's nothing new. They're not giving any new arguments. You know, they're just, their rhetoric is, is turning up the volume on mm-hmm. the fact that belief in God is dangerous or delusional or destructive or so on. What's interesting, though, since then, the next 10 years, we have what I would call the new, new atheists. And they, these fall into 
at least three categories. Number one, some are what are called apatheists. This might get to your you know, sermon topic as well. The people that say, you know what, we're done with the God question. Let's move on. We don't care about the God question. So Bill Maher would be a, a popular thing <laughs> to be an apatheist or identify as one. Then you have um, some like uh, Alex Rosenberg, who's actually the chair of the philosophy department at Duke, wrote a book in 2011 called The Atheist Guide to Reality, where he, he would... Uh, I guess, I, I don't know if I'll say this word right, but he'd be like an anesthetized, I think I said that right, atheist, you know, where he says, look, God doesn't exist. And then I'm going to write a book about it, how we make sense of the world without God. And if you can't handle it, take drugs. Literally, that's like, you know, like Prozac, you know, or whatever you want to make you right. feel good about it. As well, right? Yeah. I mean, like, who cares if you just cope? And that that's one. And then there's this third category, though, that um, I guess you would call them... Um, like religious atheists who are trying to recreate the, the splendor of the religious world in an atheistic setting. So you have the rise of the, you know, the, in, in some of our big cities, I don't know if you have one in Denver or not, but like, you know, the, the new churches that are atheistic churches that are doing all the same stuff, but they're singing, um, you know, celebrating humanity in, instead of singing Kumbaya or whatever. Yeah. They would put it. Um, and so, yeah, so you have this rise in apathy toward the question of God because of sloth. Um, and, and so that becomes a new virtue of the day. So the, the, what, the reason why my students reacted the way they did, I think, is because of the virtue of apathy. And that we're taught as a culture that that's a virtue, not to care about these perennial questions that everybody, you know, these are the deep questions of life. And so part of what we need to do now is, I think, shock people into having an engagement with reality. And that's why I think the desires are so important, you know, that we have to, it's not like, you know, the desire is there, but it's been suppressed or repressed because of our culture. And so we need to reawaken that, um, so that they can see that these perennial questions actually have answers and those, those matter, those, those questions actually matter, including of course the question, does God exist? Which is the question of which all things hinge. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just find that very intriguing. I, I had, I was having uh, lunch with uh, some friends of mine a while ago um, from outside the church and uh, one of them was a young, a young girl that I know from the gym I go to. And, and she, she literally looked at me and said, and, and said, what does God do for me? I mean, and that was the ultimate question. Wasn't, wasn't what is good in the world or, or something like that. It was just, it was kind of in a sense, I think, and this is, I think what's common is people put themselves on the throne and then just go, how can you serve me? That's right. And so, so notice what that comment, and this is so typical of all of us, right? We all struggle with this is we just add God back into the furniture of the world. Um, but, but not at the center. And so, you know, there's been all these studies like Christian Smith and his book, soul searching, where he says that the dominant uh, religion of our youth is a kind of moralistic therapeutic theism where God is a genie in a bottle. And so part of this relates to, and, and, and so in the book, what I'm arguing is that the reason why we have this, it's, it's actually our fault. It begins with us, the church. Um, you know, and, and I'm thinking of three things, specifically our rampant anti-intellectualism. That's why I love that you guys are doing this series on apologetics. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about just basic theology, you know, that this is a sacramental world. This is a world that God has created and he's fully, he's present with us. Um, but secondly, so anti-intellectualism, we live fragmented lives, so our thinkings and our willings and our emotions are, you know, cross purposes often. And then the third thing, though, is that we have 
I call it the need to rebaptize our imagination, but just this idea that we no longer, and this is true of us as Christians too, we no longer imagine ourselves as part of a world infused with and bathed in the presence of God. You know, we instead we have the kind of clockmaker mechanistic picture of God where you have God and then you have the world and the world functions as a clockmaker and there's empty space and God's somewhere up there starting the process. But he, like, you know, that's why that comment that you're the, the, um, person that you're talking to is so common but that's not the that's not the way the world is right, right. And, it's, and so part of that it begins with us being you know theologians and philosophers that that rightly understand our place in a world created and sustained and loved by god yeah very cool um at, at one point uh and and, and this is kind of the you know, kind of the last question I, I really had, and I, and I know you go into some of the arguments I think are, which are really good, and a lot of them are classical arguments for God, but, you know, approaching them from a little bit different perspective, but but I wanted to, you make this comment um, in the book, and and you, and you say, re-enchantment is the work of the Holy Spirit, and I think that that is so true, but then it was kind of, it's kind of like, okay, I can, I can buy that, but yeah. what now? What for us? What about the church? How do we how do you think from your perspective, we work alongside the Holy Spirit and maybe providing the environment where the Holy Spirit can do its work or, or however you want to phrase that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me give you five ways. <laughs> We'd like to be practical here um, because I've been, I've been asked that question since writing the book and I've been forced to kind of think about that. Um, yeah. And so I, I would say number one, we've got to be men and women of, of the Bible. And so immerse ourselves in God's word and see how Jesus viewed the world. And, you know, what you find there is a God who's, who's active in the lives of humans and active in the human history, right? Um, and so, I, I mean, very simple things like spend time daily in God's word, read the gospels daily, um, memorize scripture, uh, you know, meditate on God's word, things like that. So it's just very practical, but man, um, we've got to get back to that. Number two, um, I would encourage you and your, you know, listeners, your folks in your church um, to read theologians and thinkers who hail from a more enchanted age. Mm. What I mean by that are people who had eyes to see the world as, as I think it is the, the way that Jesus sees the world. And so I'm thinking of, you know, I mentioned um, Augustine, for example, in the confessions or Boethius or, or um, Anselm, or even more in our own day, day and age, read Lewis's um, fiction or nonfiction or Tolkien. You know, I think they understood the world as an ongoing story of exit and return, you know, um, where God is, you know, we're part of a divine drama. As Calvin said, you know, the heavens and the earth are, are the theater of God's glory. Um, so that'd be the second thing. Third thing though, in our fiction, uh, I, I would say read the fiction of those who uh, have what's called a sacramental view of the world, a sacramental ontology, as theologians talk about it now. Um, and what I mean here, I'm thinking of people like Wendell Berry, perhaps, or Marilyn Robinson, if you know these names. I think Flannery O'Connor. I'm actually reading, uh, for some of your listeners, this might be a little more close to home, um, Andrew Peterson. And is, if you've got young, young kids, uh, the Wing Feathers series, you know, these are stories that that um, provide, as Tolkien would put it, healthy forms of escape where we find consolation and recovery so that we can enter the primary world with, with basically, um, uh, you know, like eyes to see again. So that would be the third thing. Um, the fourth thing, I, I would just say, um, 
learn to, to look for God working in your life every day. Um, I'm always struck by, uh, you know, in Acts chapter three, where uh, Peter and John were, were walking to the temple and there's a cripple that asks them for money. Peter immediately stops not to give them money, but to heal him. And, and uh, you know, it was interesting. They're looking actively for God's work in their lives or the lives of those around them. And so one of the things that I do with our kids uh, that is so, they're, not, they're kind of annoyed with it now, but they get it, is, you know, every night um, around the dinner table, you know, ask this, we've been asking this for years with them, how have you seen the fingerprint of God in your life today? Mm-hmm. Like, remember, as our kids were young, you know, they'd be like, well, I got to play, you know, had, had fun in gym, you know, the question, the things that you, you know, <laughs> great, but you know, whatever. But in asking that question, our hope is eventually they'll begin to ask that question themselves. You know, how do I see the fingerprint of God in my own life today? And so beginning to cultivate that. And then the last thing I would say, number five, is to, to incorporate uh, beauty into your life. You know, a beauty has really become exiled in the church, mm-hmm. um, but we own it, right? And we've been created to run on beauty. Um, and, and so, so um, in the things that you make, whether they're PowerPoint presentations or the lawn that you mow or bridges or omelets or tomato sandwiches, you know, do it with beauty in mind or the church sanctuary that you, you develop or that you make, um, uh, you know, and then appreciate the beauty around you. I mean, you guys living in Colorado, yeah. get it right. And I, yeah. just, but, well, I uh, hope, you know, sometimes that gets old too. We see, yeah, yeah. We see so much of it every day. That's right. But yeah, so whether it's, you know, the swing of a, of a baseball bat, you know, because yeah. the World Series are happening now or, or, or you know, the, the, uh, the beauty of a melody or a well-placed sonnet or things like that. So cultivate beauty in your, in your life. And in doing so, I think that it awakens our heart. As Plato put it, beauty evokes desire and that desire sets us on a journey for the object of our longing. So those would be, I guess, <laughs> you, you know, since they're on the top of my mind, five ways to, to join with God to re-enchant your own heart. In your world. And I'm working on two books, so stay tuned. One, you know, in, in the book that you read, Cultural Apologetics, I say that we can join with God to re-enchant the world by number one, seeing and delighting the world the same way Jesus does, and number two, inviting others to do the same. So those are two books. One is written for believers. How can okay. we how can we you know see the world the way Jesus does, a sacramental view of the world? And then number two, the one I'm actually writing right now, um, is how can we point to these clues for the transcendent all around? the world to non-believers. And so I'm actually writing a book called 11 Stones, um, where, and the metaphor is, you know, the, there's all these clues. And what if you stack them? Because you guys are in Colorado. What if you stack them like a cairn? And it leads us on our journey to the true, you know, the true story of the world. And so that's kind of the, the image that I'm working with. Um, Very cool. Well, you know, a lot of hiking trails around here too, they'll actually literally stack stones to, to yeah. mark like how you turn here. That's you know, right. it kind of gives that's you the directions. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Well, man, thank you so much. Um, and, and it's really cool. I, I really appreciate it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know you. We've never met until just now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just sent you an email hoping, hey, maybe he'll respond. And, and, and you not only responded, but granted me some time. And so, man, I really appreciate that. I think it was a blessing to me. And, and I think it'll be a blessing to our people as well. Awesome. Thanks, John. And blessing to you and your church and all your listeners. So, thanks for this time. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Grace Deep Dive Podcast, where we believe in real grace for real living. We'll see you next week.